0: Our reading will be Judges 15, verse 1 through 8. Let us pray. Father, as we now take up your word and read it publicly and preach it, we pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified before us, that his might, his beauty, his mercy, his love for his people would be set before us and that we, by your Spirit, would not be able to look away, and that having become freshly fixated upon him, we would walk straight and tall in his name for his cause and kingdom in the days that follow this night. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Judges 15. After some days at the the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in, and her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught three hundred foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear, I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. This is God's word. Beloved, one thing we must understand about the way Jesus Christ works in the world, works in the church and works in our own lives, is that he works as an agitator. If you've ever done laundry, you know what an agitator is. It's that large plastic axle in the middle of your washing machine that agitates the clothing to remove what? Dirt. So it is rinsed away. Now, what I mean by this is that Jesus, our living Lord, has designs and plans and purposes to disrupt, to provoke, to incite, to goad, to agitate in a way that either causes people to stumble in the darkness they love or causes them to rise and push their way out of the world through spirit-endowed faith, past many temptations, and lay hold of the triumphant Christ, by faith for eternal life. Jesus is the Savior who agitates because we are saved by his agitations. This is the primary theme in the life of Samson. The story of Samson's birth is told back in Judges 13. We learn there that Samson was chosen by the Lord to be a deliverer in Israel, also called the judge, But a deliverer is maybe a better term. As a little savior, for that's what a deliverer is, as a little savior, Samson will be an agent of the big savior, the Lord God. Samson is raised up to agitate the relationship between God's people and the world. Why? Because this is the ministry of the Lord when he dwells. In the midst of his people. It is the ministry of Christ to provoke the elect to embrace their true destiny and yield to him their ultimate allegiance. In Matthew 10, your Lord and mine says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's the ministry of agitation. Unto salvation. Jesus certainly brings peace between sinners and God, but he does not bring peace between his redeemed people and the world. In that relationship, he agitates. He agitates because there is no salvation of God's people where God's people are simultaneously at peace with the world and at peace with God. There's no such salvation as that. Salvation, in fact, includes, as Peter says, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, 2 Peter 1.4. Wherever God establishes his church and Christ exercises his government, there will be this ministry of agitation against worldliness in the church. The Lord Jesus attends his own churches to agitate, to separate, to save. He tells us that in every one of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. He's in attendance, and he has a zeal for his people and their salvation. Now, the Lord does this not only by his ordinary providence, but he does it also by his ordinary means, the ministry of the word and sacraments through appointed servants. In fact, the Apostle Paul, while speaking to the Corinthians about their own abuse of the Lord's Supper, says, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. 32. That's the ministry of agitation right there. Who's performing it? The head of the body, the Lord Jesus. So let's get back to Judges. The message of Judges 14 and 15 is that our Savior is zealous to agitate the worldliness that attracts his people he agitates to save to keep us from apostasy so in these chapters 14 and 15 the lord is doing through samson the very thing we just heard paul speaking about at the end of 1 corinthians 11 it says in judges 14:4 4, this is such a key text the lord was seeking an opportunity against the philistines who was The Lord was. Why? Because nobody in Judah, nobody in the church was. There was not a Phineas among them. The Lord was among them, though. He wasn't away from his people. The Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. He was seeking to break up a forbidden union. That the church had made with the world. Now when chapter fifteen opens, Samson has come to the house of his father in law. Surprisingly enough, for some, the verses I read to you are not to be used in a marriage seminar, nor to train a bachelor on how to get a date. Hey, you just need a goat. That's what that's not what these texts are about. Samson has come to the house of his father-in-law to reconcile and seek marital union with his Philistine wife. He has not seen his wife for a while. She had been disloyal to him. She gave away the secret of Samson's riddle about his hair. She gave it to her countrymen, and Samson had left her in anger, 1419. But after some days now, Samson has cooled off. He returns to the Philistine village of Timnah at the time of the wheat harvest to be with his wife. He doesn't bring flowers. He brings a goat because that's going to be dinner. He comes with dinner. This is DoorDash before DoorDash. When Samson gets to the house, his plan is rejected at the door. The father-in-law tells Samson his wife has been given away to another man. Everyone thought Samson hated her. So she has been given to Samson's best man from the wedding. This means another disloyalty has been added to the first disloyalty. First, the secret of his strength has been given away to the countrymen of the Philistines. And now the father-in-law has given away the wife to the same countrymen. The Lord is agitating. He is agitating the relationship between his church and the world. You see, the Philistines are of the world. They do not worship God. They, however, rule over Israel. Israel has made a peace with them, but not a peace that the Lord approves. Now the Lord is showing them and us just how disloyal, unfaithful, and untrue the world really is. The world is a cruel mistress. She has betrayed Samson. She is not governed by principle. She is driven by pleasure, power, and praise. And the Lord will see to it that his elect children learn this So they strive to keep communion with the one who is always loyal, always true, always faithful. So how does Samson respond to this new betrayal, this new disloyalty of the Philistines? He drives them out. Verse 4 says he captured these 300 foxes. He ties the foxes together into couples by their tails. And then he sets those tails on fire, releases the foxes into the grain fields, the olive groves that belong to the Philistines. God's deliverer begins to drive the world out of the church. This should remind us, of course, of the greater Samson, our Lord Jesus, who came and agitated in several ways. One, of course, we remember is against the temple in Jerusalem. The gospel, te- the gospels tell us Jesus found people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers were doing business all in the temple courts. They had turned the house of prayer. Jesus is, Jesus said, you have turned my father's house of prayer into a den of thieves. Because those were not upright men running those businesses in the precincts of the temple. The world had been invited into the church. Our Lord made whips, a a whip of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple. He poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. He was just as offensive in doing that to those who loved the prosperity of worldliness as Samson was offensive to the people of Judah who loved the Philistines. That's agitation. It's the ministry of Jesus Christ for the salvation of his people. In verse 6 of chapter 15, the Philistines begin their reprisal. They learn Samson burned their crops because his wife had been given away, So what do they do? They first go to her house and burn her to death and then burn her father to death. Again, the Lord is showing us the world has no loyalty, even to its own. Satan has no loyalty to those whom he wants to rule. There is no party in hell. Satan only wants men to be destroyed even if it means keeping them under the wrath of God. The world devours their own. After his wife is burned, Samson responds with what the text describes as hand-to-hand combat. Verse 8 says, He struck the Philistines who burned his wife. He struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. Now this is a Hebrew way of describing the fight of a wrestler with no weapon but his own body. The outcome of this fight is a heap of mortally wounded Philistines who have been struck down to death. And when you read passages like that, in light of the entirety of scripture, we should read them and see this body count at the hand of Samson, the deliverer, of Yahweh, we should see it as an eschatological intrusion of the divine judgment day. It's a little foretaste of what will befall the world on the final day when the sheep and the goats are separated. Verse 8 then says Samson went to a place of solitude, just like the greater Samson often did. He takes shelter in the cleft of the rock of Etam, And while he is there, a large force of Philistine warriors come up to fight in Judah. They have come to take vengeance upon Samson for his latest victory, the hip and thigh battle. And this is where we see how worldly the people of God have become. How worldly the church has become. In verse 10, the men of Judah, the covenant people of the visible church, they whine to the the Philistines. No, they didn't serve wine. They whined and complained and grumbled to the Philistines. Why have you come up against us? In other words, The men of Judah, the men of the church said, what have we done to agitate you Philistines? Aren't we getting along just fine? Why are you here, you 3,000 Philistines? Or excuse me, not 3,000 Philistines. But what they are saying is, of course, the very problem. The men of Judah are surprised that the world is angry with them because they had worked so hard to make the world happy with them. But the problem here is much darker. When Samson's countrymen, the men of Judah, learn Samson is the cause of the conflict with the Philistines, instead of fighting for Samson, the text describes their betrayal of Samson. His own brothers. They show the same disloyalty to Samson that his Philistine wife Delilah had shown to him that his Philistine father-in-law, Timnah, had shown to him. The men of Judah are in Judah, but they are built by the DNA of the world. Verse 11 of chapter 15 says that 3,000 men of Judah turn and fight not against the Philistines, but against Samson. They all go and find him at the cleft of the rock in Etam and listen to, what, listen to the tragic thing they say to Samson. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? This is how worldly the church was in these days. They saw Samson's fight against the world as a fight against their own well-being. That's how the Presbyterian Church of the USA saw J. Gresham Machen and John DeWard of Cedar Grove, Wisconsin and Arthur Perkins of Rhinelander who started Crescent Lake Bible Camp. They all became OPC ministers. Because the church, instead of fighting the world, fought the ministers of the gospel who were actually sent by the Lord to agitate, to save those in the church from apostasy. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers? Over us. What kingdom is this? This is how worldly they were. They saw Samson's attack on those in the image of the devil as Samson bringing injury upon themselves. Judah. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? I do know I've read that three times now. It's the most tragic remark in three chapters of this book. The most tragic remark in the whole book is they did what was right in their own eyes. The men of Judah are so content to be under worldly domination inside the kingdom of God, they actually despise one of their own when he upsets a relationship God has forbidden. This is going on in the churches of Christ even today, in the denominations of Christ even today. Look how little regard Israel had for the deliverer God had raised up for them. They esteemed him not, this Samson. The very words Isaiah said about Christ in Isaiah 53. Like the men of Judah, the church can become so worldly, we want the Savior to shut up. Let me ask you, how much do you esteem the greater Samson, the true deliverer, Jesus Christ? How much do you esteem him when he comes and agitates your attraction to the world? Do you just want him to be quiet? There's so many ways to quiet Christ, isn't there? Because we cannot bear him agitating a forbidden bond that we've entered into with the Philistines. We can quiet him by simply staying far away from his word. I just don't want to hear preaching. I just got to stay away because I know my Savior will agitate me through preaching. And so we start to keep ourselves away from hearing the word, reading the word, Beloved, are you eager for the Lord's ministry of agitation? You should be. Because what did Paul say to the Corinthians? He disciplines us so that we will not be condemned along with the world. If you are not welcoming a ministry that keeps you from condemnation, then there's nothing left for you. Because that's a ministry of grace. Grace keeps you from condemnation. we often want to be at peace with the world more than we want communion with God and faithfulness to his king. But the Savior will agitate. He will not let his elect have whatever they may want. Praise God. Because if he left us in the arms of the world, we would be condemned in those arms. The Lord has something better. But it is not something easy. Finally, look with me at what happens in verse 12 and 13. The men of Judah, they come, his own brethren, they bind Samson with ropes and turn him over to the Gentiles. Just like our Savior was bound in the Garden of Gethsemane and turned over to Pilate, The Savior must be silenced, say his brothers. He is an agitator. He's not allowing us to be at peace with the world. Verse 14 says, when they brought him up to Lehi, the mob of Philistines shouted to meet him. Blood was in the water and the sharks were in a frenzy. But the Savior, behind the Savior, is stronger than the world's strongest. Look what happens. Verse 14. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. Just like our Lord Jesus on the cross. In the hour he appeared to be defeated, the Spirit of God raises Samson up above his enemies in triumph. The Savior behind the Savior is prefiguring to us that he is greater than the world. Through the eternal Spirit, he gains the victory for his people. He is the last man standing. He, not the world, has the kingdom and the power and the glory. Because heaven, the dwelling place of the eternal spirit, heaven is power and presence is given to the deliverer, not the world. The world is in the flesh. The body of Christ is in the spirit. So here is the lesson from verse 14. It is much safer to have the world hate you It is much safer to have the world hate you than it is to be at peace with the world. Please never forget that. Don't be ashamed when the world hates you. It hated your master, Jesus Christ, first. The Savior will always, always triumph over the world. Then where will you be? If you have taken shelter in alliance with the world, you will be defeated. Now, did you notice who Samson did not fight? He did not fight the 3,000 men of Judah. Mm -mm. The men who bound him, who turned him over to the Gentiles, he did not turn on them. He did not fight his own covenant brothers who betrayed him. Why not? Because the Lord remembers his covenant. He remembers his promise to proclaim mercy to his people. Instead of crushing them, he demonstrates again how easily he can crush their enemies. In the midst of their treachery, he demonstrates his loyalty to the men of Judah his faithfulness to the men of Judah, his love for the men of Judah, in the midst of their treachery, not because there was no treachery, in the midst of it, on the cross, our perfect Savior bore the shame of our hatred without striking back at us, though we put him there. He now comes into our churches calling us to repent, of seeking peace with the world, he comes into our churches our churches calling us to forsake the world, which is in every membership vow in the OPC. He comes into our churches and calls us to come and hide in his triumph, to seek shelter in his fidelity and power, to give full devotion to him and his ways and truth. May his glory and wisdom and power and might, like Samson, show us how fickle and unfaithful and defeated the world already is by his triumph on the cross. Now lastly, something we heard at the men's retreat that I want you to hear tonight in light of this message. In 1987, Charles Dennison wrote an excellent essay about one of the founding fathers of our denomination, J. Gresham Machen. And at the very end of that essay, he spoke directly about the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and its relationship to the world. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church begins where Machen ended, and that is her secret, her genius, and her calling. She, too, has known his humiliation and isolation, but also a glory that transcends the world and culture in which she finds herself. She is no mere American church, nor more of the same old Presbyterianism with an acculturated message. To be sure, the OPC continues to address the issues of the church and the church, the issues of the church and the churches, the issue of the church and the world, But in the culture, is she to dominate, take over? Is she the purveyor of some sort of religious imperialism? Or is she to seek marriage with the culture and become indistinguishable from it? No. In conclusion, the posture she and Machen Don must be the same. It must be that of their savior. The posture is one of a servant, In the midst of a world that does not understand and, in large measure, does not care. Let us pray. Our gracious God, you have taught us in Judges 15 the world does not care. She does not care about the allegiances, alliances, and fidelity of the church with Jesus Christ, her King. The church must be the one who cares, or none will. But Lord, we thank you and praise you that the Savior cares. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you come and agitate in our churches, our denominations, and our own private, personal lives so that we would not be condemned along with the world. We thank you for this zeal and this love for us. It is often an unfamiliar love to us, we think it sometimes too strange and disruptive and unpleasant. But hell is far more disruptive and strange and unpleasant. Oh, gracious Savior God, we thank you for the sword that separates us from men of the world, not to kill our love for our neighbor but to kill our love for the world and to love the kingdom and seek first its righteousness. We pray that the glory of the greater Samson, Jesus Christ, his strength, his unconquerable power, his kingdom, and his love would be set before us with an unfading glory We ask for this in his name. Amen.